Disclaimer. The content in these podcasts are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have learned from these podcasts. This is Marcia Stonehill with Melty Ice. Today on Operation Flow, I have Dr. Vivine Pierce McDaniel. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. McDaniel. She entered a Doctor of Nursing Practice degree from Walden University with a concentration in Health Policy and Advocacy and a Master's of Science in Nursing from American Sentinel University. In her current role as an assistant professor of nursing at Aspen University, she mentors doctoral students and teaches in the DNP program. She is also an academic diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant for two universities. Dr. McDaniel has served in leadership roles in healthcare and nursing for more than 20 years. Her love for mentoring led her to academics, but she still maintains leadership responsibilities and serves on several boards, including the Virginia Nurses Foundation, the Sigma Theta Tau Chi Alpha Chapter Board of Directors, and Virginia Nurses Association Central Chapter. She is the current Vice President of the Central Virginia Chapter of the National Black Nurses Association. Dr. McDaniel is the chair of the Virginia Nurses Association's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council and authors several articles for the Virginia Nurses Today newspaper that focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion. She is an active member of the AACN Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Group. In addition, Dr. McDaniel serves on the Virginia Long-Term Care Wellness Advisory Committee and on the Virginia Governor's Long-Term Care Facility Task Force. She also is a Medical Reserve Corps volunteer and was a recent recipient of a 2020 Year of the Nurse Award by the Virginia Nurses Foundation. Dr. McDaniel, excuse me, Dr. McDaniel, (laughs) thank you so much for being on Operation Flow today, especially after reading that bio and realizing the multitude of commitments that you have. We thank you so much for being with us today. Masha, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. And please call me Vivine. Thank you, Vivine. <laughs> please um, share with our listeners, you know, you and I have had the opportunity to have several conversations in the background, and we've just realized that there's probably a hundred podcasts that we could do together because there's just so much to talk about. Um, but to get us started for today, please let us know uh, what it is you're here to share with our listeners today. Well, thank you for asking. I am on a quest to dismantle racism. And so that is what my focus is. Uh, I, you know, the whole movement to dismantle racism has nothing to do with making anyone feel guilty for the past horrible acts against black Americans. It's all about cultural awareness, cultural humility and responsibility, about acknowledging the fact that we all have biases It's about calling racism what it is, giving it the name of racism and calling it that, and also about the marginalization and oppression of people of color based on a social pecking order that privileges non-white people, that, that I'm sorry, that privileges white people. And what I mean by this is groups are excluded due to their race, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, physical ability, language, 
and their immigration status. And those are just some of the um, the groups that I have mentioned here. There are many more. Yes. Now, you um, everything you just shared can take us into you know kind of multiple different directions because there's a lot of terms in there that I think as you and I discuss them, will hopefully help people that tend to get defensive when these, when you hear terms like privilege or like you brought up the fact that sometimes guilt is what arises in people. And, and you and I have had previous conversations that that's not at all what these conversations are seeking to elicit in people. We don't want people to feel guilty. We want people to feel aware, uh, to come to new understanding of steps that they can take to help keep a ball moving forward so that we don't get stuck and, and stay inside this, uh, I call it an illusion, you know, thinking that everything is settled and that there's not more work to do. Um, Yes, I agree. Uh, People need to speak up and get involved and and advocate for um, what I am talking about when I say dismantling racism. And it will not happen unless people are willing to have a conversation. You know, these conversations do get very messy. And, you know, the thing that I keep saying is I don't know how we'll ever talk about race until we learn how to talk to each other. You know, so we definitely have to be willing to put down our defenses and really listen to perspectives that are outside of the way we've been taught to think about things. And absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. So, you know, when you talk about dismantling racism and we talk about, you know, not feeling guilty, I think about some of the cynical remarks I've heard as as far as, and it almost feels to me like it comes from the season of time that we had where you had to be politically correct. Um, this is not about being politically correct. This is about being thoughtful and aware, like you said, having cultural humility, um, just expanding our horizons, I like to say, thinking outside of the box of our own personal experience. Yes. Um, when, you know, because I'm in healthcare, I often talk about the impact of systemic racism and uh, you know we have known for a long time that systemic racism influences the social determinants of health you hear us talk about the social determinants of health and we can talk about that a little bit more later but people who live in uh, these marginalized neighborhoods they often receive lower quality of care from healthcare providers causing dramatic health inequities. And uh, I, I, I like to, I would like to share a story with you that uh, my mom told me that she experienced uh, a, a while ago, uh, if you will. Vivine, if I can preface that story too with, I really appreciate that you're willing to share something so deeply personal. I think this is part of the problem with the disconnect that we have in our nation. Um, we've been taught to think that these things happened so many years ago as if it's not as if it's not happening to or hasn't happened to a person sitting right next to us. So thank you for being willing to share very candidly so that we can, again, grow in our awareness and recognize that it wasn't that long ago and these things are still happening. And they are still happening, yes. So the story that was told to me by my mom 
that she experienced while seeking health care for me. Uh, it was around 1961. Well, I was born in 1957, so it, uh, this occurred in 1961. And living in a rural town, uh, I lived in, a, I came from a town called Claremont, Virginia, where uh, my mother-in-law and other family and friends still reside. And we lived in a healthcare desert. I mean, the most accessible hospital without having to cross the James River by either bridge or by the Jamestown Ferry was in Hopewell, Virginia. And the experience, as she told me, is steeped in racial injustice inequities and disparities, which is why I thought to tell this story when you asked, when you brought up that um, topic. And it continues to haunt me in adulthood. I had a very high fever, and I vaguely remember how sick I felt back then. Uh, I remember that uh, I could hardly raise my head from the pillow, and I was so lethargic. And at the time, black people, or as we were called then, colored people, could only be seen after all of the white people had been seen. And so as the story goes, I my mother took me to be seen two days uh, in a row, uh, the fever was just, uh, to her, she was just so afraid that her child was going to die. And I, she said that she took me there and, and she just couldn't believe that they were not going to treat me because of the fact that I was black. And then as an adult, when I was pregnant with my daughter, my husband and I were living in Newport News, Virginia, in what people used to call the good section of town. And the closest OBGYN practice consisted of four white men. Now, I was blessed enough to get the one doctor at the practice who seemed to treat me like a human being. But my fear was that when I went into labor, that he would not be the doctor on call. And of course, my worst fears came true. <laughs> the doctor on call when I delivered uh, was a doctor that I had seen maybe one time at the practice, and he did not try to hide his dis disdain for caring for a black person. Uh, so I had already worked myself up thinking that I was going to hemorrhage to death. I, I have no idea where that came from, but um, I, I just remember thinking and, and being concerned about that. And uh, I had a nurse, I believe she was an LPN, but I was so excited because she looked like me, because no one else at the hospital looked like me, and uh, except for the people that were either in housekeeping or... Um, I believe there was a nurse aide there, but this nurse was, um, I had expressed my fears to her, and when I came in, um, she kind of took me under her wing, and she assured me not to worry. So I had my daughter, and, and she was joking with me because after I had my daughter, you know, she said, see, you survived, everything, went well. Well, four hours later, uh, she had escorted me to the restroom and she had worked a double shift because on this day there was a blizzard and other nurses could not get into work. I mean, it was, it was almost up to my waist. It was really uh, a bad blizzard. And so she was she had worked a second shift, uh, a double shift, and on her way back from escort, escorting me from the restroom, I felt like I was about to pass out, and I remember her pushing me up on the bed, and sure enough, I hemorrhaged, and um, 
they say that it was caused by retained placenta and and they I heard I could I literally heard them calling the code and it was just such a horrific experience and all I can remember about 45 minutes afterwards was that the doctor the doctor had disappeared where they found him and when he came back and he saw the state I was in um, I, I guess he, he, I don't, you know, he had, his face was just so red, like, what have I done? So I, I think about those experiences, uh, in relation to what you, uh, were talking about. Now, and this, uh, experience you had in your adult life was in the 1980s, right? It, it was exactly 1980, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you had also shared with me in previous conversations some things that you remember experiencing as a child being in a rural community in Virginia. And mm-hmm. it, it seems to me that these are things, again, that are relevant to talk about because we've tended to push these experiences under the rug and either act as if really it wasn't that bad or it didn't really happen or we're so far past that we need to just move forward. Um, Do you mind to share with our listeners some of the things that uh, you remember experiencing further in your childhood? Oh, sure. I'm often flashing back to my childhood. Um, I I can remember experiencing racism uh, there during the time that, well, let's say during my school age times. Um, during my elementary and high school days, because I was at a segregated school. Now, the, the positive side of that is that all of my all of my teachers were African American were were black people. Yes. And and so, you know, that brought a certain culture uh, within the school system. But I was acutely aware of the inferiority in our books, which were hand me downs, and in fact I still have one of those textbooks um, and that my mother say, preserved and also our school supplies so we got through everything um, I mean I, I just remember what got me through was the undeniable and immeasurable love my black teacher showered me with on a daily basis but of course, racism had to rear its ugly head even in my school. I believe I was either in the third or the fourth grade when I would just say some people who were anti-black desecrated our school with graffiti. And I remember the words, Kilroy was here. It was spray painted and the N-word and other epithets that an eight a nine-year-old child should never have to see and I was petrified me and my classmates were were so scared and we soon found ourselves afraid to go to the one place that we felt secure in and that was our school and I uh, remember another um, uh, occasion that uh, I, I have to say that I grew up with an uncle who uh, marched with Martin Luther King, and he also marched with um, the late great Congressman John Lewis. He was um, he was a person who civil rights was his whole life until he died, and. Uh, I called him uncle because he told me that he he wanted me to call him uncle. So I will often refer to him as uncle, but he was my mother's first cousin. Um, And he ended up 
helping to uh, integrate the schools in Hopewell, Virginia, um, the Reverend Dr. Curtis Harris. But I, I share this with you to say that I guess he had instilled in me um, that you had to fight for your civil rights. So I can remember, uh, and this is a little humorous, but I remember having um, uh, this situation in my in, at my school where they decided that they were taking the chocolate milk out. Now remember, I am a child. I have all of the feelings and none of the facts. Right. So, so they took chocolate, they got rid of the chocolate milk and all I could think of was how come the brown milk has to, <laughs> why are they taking the brown milk away from me? I hate um, the, the white milk. I don't, I don't like milk even to this day I drink it but I don't like it <laughs> but anyway I decided that I was going to take some popsicle sticks and make some signs like I had seen the people you know in the civil rights movement do and that I was going to um have my own uh um I was going to picket the, the school for taking out the chocolate milk. Okay. Now, mind you, again, I said I was at an all-black school. So who was I really picketing against <laughs> for them removing the chocolate milk? But uh, it's just a funny story to me that I would even think to do something like that as a child in elementary school because they took out the brown milk. So, um, you know, there were some good things, lots of good things that happened uh, at that school. But the thing that that I remember the most was the, the act against us uh, for being black and, um, you know, and and those people that came into our school that totally, totally petrified me and made me frightened to go to school. You know, um, there's so many things that go through my mind right now as I listen to you share about this. And, you know, you and I again talked previously about, you know, how parents did their best to protect their children from these very types of incidents and to try to help create as normal of a life as possible. Um, can you speak into that a little bit? Um, okay, so ask me that question again. I'm sorry. Well, I guess, you know, the you're experiencing these horrifying things as a child. Mm-hmm. And there's... There's no real way to escape it, but yet at the same time, I remember you had shared that your parents worked very hard to protect you from these things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the parents and the rest of the village, because uh, in my small rural town, um, everyone looked out for for everyone. I mean, each family played a role in my upbringing. And um, I, first let me share with you that I lived in this town called Claremont and the black people lived in one area and the white people lived in another area. And we did not, you know, we weren't afraid in our neighborhood. We weren't afraid, you know, um, our parents kind of told us what we couldn't do. You know, you don't talk back. You don't. You don't stare. You don't. Um, if if someone if someone tells you something to do, uh, and and especially if they are white, you just do it. You know, uh, I wasn't afraid living there, but I was always aware that I was different. And so, yes, my parents were very protective as were all of the other parents that lived there. But, you know, we got along. 
um, they didn't come into our area and trouble us, and we didn't go into their area, except, of course, we the post office was located in that area. But I was never afraid. I'll tell you what, Masha, I'm more afraid today to walk down the street there than I was when I was a child. Wow. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. it you're, this is not the first time, though, that I've heard exactly what you're saying. It's kind of this, and I feel like this is what we're still trying to break through. And it's the whole stay, as long as you stayed in your lane, everything was fine. Uh, I've heard people say that, especially about mm-hmm. the rural area, even of King George, Virginia. And I'm sure that's true across our nation and in rural areas and everywhere. Um, and is this not then what is meant in a way by internalized racism that there's still uh, an apprehension about what a white person will tolerate or not tolerate from a black person, right? And and how will they respond? Will it cause you to lose your job? Will it ruin your reputation? Will it, you know, will it just get blown out in some sort of disproportionate manner that that makes your life miserable oh I can definitely relate to that I remember um, working for a um, assisted living facility and when I first got there I was told by one of the um, workers there that and and I was in a um, I was the director for that facility and I was told that uh, the white nurses that were working there said that they were not going to work for me you know because I was black and uh, it it to the extent that they they conspired against me and and they said that they were going to get rid of me and they they pretty much did whatever they could do to to get me out of there all the time while they were telling me what a wonderful person I was to your face so yeah so so i i do want people to to realize that yes there are people out here who if they want to get rid of you, and especially on the job, they they can do it. I mean, because I would never have dreamed that something like that could have happened to me. I've always had um, a great, you know, great experiences, except uh, I do remember, I think I told you a story about when I was working in Richmond, uh, when early on, because I was a nurse aide before they became certified nurse aides. Um, And I was working somewhere and I remember feeling excluded and, um, you know, I wasn't embraced. They would, they, the, the other nurses would get into a corner and talk about things that they were going to do and they wouldn't include me and it, it was hurtful. So, uh, so yeah, I've, I've experienced that. And also, uh, getting back to what you had asked me before, um, you know, with everything that's still happening, I had left Virginia, um, I want to say, I think it was in the, it was in 80. It was in 80. And I came back to Virginia in 2000 or 2001, 2000, and it was the first time that I ever had been called the N word. Mm. Was when I came back. Yes, in 2000, I was in rural Virginia. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and 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 I had gone to Boston. I did uh, freelance photography at the Boston Celtics. And was treated like royalty, and um, and also in all of the other places that uh, that I, you know, that I worked, I was always treated very nicely. 
also, and I, and I make the reference to Boston because I have a lot of friends who always try to tell me that, uh, um, how did you end up in Boston? That's a racist town and, you know, and, and they hated my Celtics. So, so I make the reference that I was a black woman in a predominantly white, um, environment and I was embraced and treated very kindly so to come back to my own hometown or my own um, state and be called the n-word was devastating to me Mm. you know you had also shared with me earlier about a situation that did occur in Boston that was an example of white privilege. Um, we know, if I can say this, I know everybody gets a little bristly, you know, when we use these terms like white privilege. So this is definitely an area where we need to have more conversations and really direct examples because I, I believe with all my heart that as, as people... Uh, come to understand what is meant by that term and come to learn things that they can do to modify patterns of behavior. Um, I think there's a lot of people, a majority of people will be glad to make those adjustments once they see if they can put their defenses down enough to allow the light bulbs to come on. So I'm hoping that as you share about this experience, it might help awaken the concept of what is meant by white privilege. Yes, I, I went to, uh, I was invited to this ex- extravagant affair. Um, they had a lot of celebrities and different um, people that were going to be there. And um, I had a friend who was uh, going with me, and she was a white girl, uh, a white woman, rather. And she and I went to the the uh, to pick up my tickets. And as we approached the counter, I engaged the person that was uh, behind the, the the ticket counter, and I told him my name. And I told him I was there to pick up tickets for this gala. And he never looked at me. He started talking to her and started uh, engaging her in conversation. And, and when he found the tickets, he handed them to her and told her to sign right here. And I said, excuse me, um, the tickets were left for me, and I'm the person that's picking up the tickets. So um, she is just, uh, I've just invited her as my guest. And so, of course, he, um, uh, he, he was speechless and couldn't really respond to that. But that is, to me, a good example of what we mean because... I have people to say to me that um, why do you why do why do people say white privilege? All white people were not privileged, and and what I want to say to that is when we walked into that arena to pick up those tickets, and the person looked at her and saw that she had white skin and I had black skin, he immediately assumed that she was the one that would be getting these tickets to this extravagant event. So, yes, I understand that um, not all white people are privileged, but when a person see you and they don't know that, they're going to look at the fact that you are white and elevate you above the black person. So um, that, you know, that that's what I felt that day. And I think this is definitely the point we're trying to drive home when it comes to pr- the concept of privilege. Um, 
we're talking about this the implicit bias, the biases that are hidden, the the there's been such a, a negative connotation uh, directed toward black people. Is this what I'm hearing you say? And and therefore, oh. you know, white people have subconsciously, you know, adopted some these ideas. Yes, yeah. yeah, some subconscious. Yes, and but those are the people we can reach. Those are the people yeah. who, um, if they can put their defenses down, you know, can be a part of the movement to help make the necessary changes. Um, you know, it's it's not enough to just love and see people as equal. We we have to be willing to look at our biases, even those of us that love. We have those biases. You know, as I listen to you share your your experience that you had in Boston, you know, I have had that experience with people, and I know um, I would respond differently in that type of a scenario with what I understand now than I did at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, not to make an excuse, but just again to have the messy conversation, you know, as a white woman who has, you know, we struggle with the whole sexism thing, right? You know, so Mm -hmm. we're groping for our own wanting to be heard and wanting our voice to be validated and with a complete and total utter disconnect of the reality of what's being experienced by someone such as yourself. Yes. And I, um, I want to go back to something that I discussed earlier because I remember, um, that the hospital that I gave birth to then, uh, I think I had mentioned to you before that that was in 1980 and I can remember that and I, I don't want to get this wrong but I do believe that um, Congressman Bobby Scott's father was one of the physicians who had tried to gain privileges at this hospital and was denied privileges and um, it wasn't until I believe 1988 that a black physician physician gained privileges at that hospital and I just I, I said that because it was something that you just said a few minutes ago and I can't remember exactly what you said but it made me think back to that the fact that it took until 1988 for that person um, for a black physician to gain privileges at that hospital and just think about it that wasn't that long ago either no it wasn't so yeah so I, I, I don't know it just makes me think about um, I hear people talk about equality but really, to me, it's all about equity. Uh, and um, I think I shared with you also about the, jo- the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation depiction of um, the difference between equality and equity. And, um, and you know, social equity is the active commitment to fairness and justice, to fair- fairness and justice not injustice and is the state of affairs by which all people have the same status or are provided the opportunity to have the same status and so I I often share with people about the um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has a a picture that shows equality um, with everyone getting the same thing. Everyone got the same bicycle. And then they have another picture with equity that shows that everyone had a bicycle, but it was adapted to their needs. So each, so um, there was a person who was in a wheelchair and they got a bicycle that they could use. And then the tall person got a tall bicycle, bicycle, 
and the short person got a short bicycle. So everyone had a bicycle that they could use. That was about uh, fairness, you know. Everyone had one they, they could use instead of having the same thing, the same bicycle. So it, it was something that you said earlier again that, of course, I can't, I'm not remembering how I'm tying this to what you said, but it prompted me to, um, to share that with you. Um, unfortunately, I can't remember what you said. But, well, these are terms, though, that we need to get used to, that we need to be thoughtful about, that we really do need to come to understand uh, what is being communicated in this. You know, again, I just find that people get so defensive so quickly uh, with I'm not racist or we all just need to love each other or we all, you know, we just need to stop seeing color. You know, you you hear all these defensive responses instead of, you know, I think what our conversation, what we're trying to do is just ask people to um, have the messy conversations, dig into what is meant by these things and be very thoughtful about things that you can do to take action to promote the necessary changes that we are needing and looking for today. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think about also just all of the things that I have experienced. And I used to say to people that um, uh, I, don't, I'm, I don't think I've ever been exposed to racism and how dare I? I I cannot believe that I've ever uttered those words out of my mouth, you know. Um, the thing is, is that, again, we need to call it what it is. And instead of doing a lot of talk and making statements about it, we need to walk the talk. We need to, we need to show people um, you know, how we are going to do this. How are we going to dismantle it? How are we going to uh, let people know that we stand with them uh, against this, you know? And uh, another, another story for you. When I started in uh, my nursing profession, I was working in Williamsburg, and 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 also, and I, I don't know if I've ever told you that that I worked for the first mental health hospital in the United States. You know that that's that's Eastern State. You know because you're you're a mental health yes, professional. Yes. So yeah. So um, and I hope you don't mind that I am naming you know, where things occur to me. I, I hope you don't mind, and I hope, I no, hope the audience doesn't I, mind. I think it's important. <laughs> you know, this is what we're asking our nation to do. Again, going back to saying this is not about guilting anyone. This is not about placing shame. This is about talking about the realities of what have occurred so we can stop pretending these things haven't occurred so that we can build a constructive and structured forward momentum right so so please be candid be real this is what we're trying to model for other people um thank you vivine we really appreciate how you're sharing and what you're sharing thank you so uh, i encountered a supervisor who told me that black people were better at sports and that people were nothing without an education well, you know, that kind of took me back to, so you're saying that people are nothing without an education, but we were um, beat and whipped for learning to read, you know, um, people in my, my ancestors were, you know, so, but you're telling me, a black woman, that, um, that you're nothing without an education. Well, I reported the behavior to her supervisor, and he told me, well, that isn't racism, that's preference. She just has a preference for um, who she wants to um, be around. And I didn't understand that because we weren't discussing who she wanted to be around. We were discussing that she was treating me in a way that I didn't feel that I should be treated. 
And so um, uh, how I got into nursing actually was because of how I was being treated at the, at that um, at that facility. So uh, what happened was the local community college was recruiting people for their nursing program. And I wasn't, I wasn't in nursing at the time. I was a certified um, clinical coder. And, but I heard about it and I said, uh, I'm going to go and, and check it out. So uh, I went over to hear the presentation and um, they started talking about how I would work 20 hours, but I would be paid for 36 hours. And all I could think of was, oh my gosh, that means I only have to deal with um, um, being around the people that are treating me this way for 20 hours a week. Hmm. And, um, you know, and so I, all I could think about was I was going to be removed from that toxic environment. And again, coming back from up north to, um, to this area, I, I just wasn't used to being treated the way that she was treating me. But then I got into the nursing school and again, I started feeling, um, excluded as white students were selected to be in the honor society, you know, and I had grades that were um, better than some of them. And, you know, they were given positions such as student president and, um, you know, there were no people of color that were selected. So I started feeling um, again that, wow, this really does exist. It always has existed. And I am a living um, witness of all of these things that are happening. But and it all—it always took me back to something from childhood. I remember as a child that they would come to my town and collect all of these young um, black, and and these were youths and take them, I never really knew where they were going to pick tobacco, mm. but that's what, yeah, they would they would take them in these uh, pickup trucks, and I think about how unsafe that was now, you know, and, um, you know, it just always takes me back. Hmm. You know, I, you shared so much there, and I'm just reflecting on um goodness i'm having a hard time focusing because there was so much but part of what i was thinking of as you were sharing is you know i can provide testimony today too that now that my eyes are more opened and i'm seeing things through a broader lens i can reflect back on different work environments that i've been in where i've seen leadership choose uh, put other white people in leadership over black applicants and, you know, then me not having any understanding why this black person was so upset they didn't get the job, you know, because I had no awareness at that time myself. But then it's now that my light bulbs have come on and I can see very clearly the the bias, the blatant bias that was occurring. And, you know, I've seen incidents too and this has happened in the last six months, okay, where, you know, workplace leadership is putting a different measure of disciplinary action on people of color than they did on white people that were honestly uh, creating a hostile environment, right? Um, so these are the things that we that we need our leaders and workplaces and supervisors to be accountable for uh protecting people from a hostile environment and looking at, I, I call it a, a power play. It's as if, it's as if white people still have this uh, sense of power. They're, they're less afraid to, 
I don't know how to say it, Vivine, but it's, except that it's a power play. You know, there's still just things that are, like I said, disciplinary action that's put on black people or p- other people of color, you know, that's not put on white, white people. Why? This is wrong. It needs to stop. And these things have to be addressed. Um, Absolutely. And it happens everywhere. It's, it's in the workplace um, where you have a person who's hired, who's um, totally incompetent, and the black person has to train them to do the job that they've been doing. They may not have the education, but they have been doing the job. And then if they are, uh, if they, you know, if they know enough to train the person that they are hiring to replace them, then, I mean, how can you, how can you explain that? But it doesn't just happen there. It happens everywhere. It happens in the media. When the media, when, when, when you have, when you arrest someone like, um, Dylan Roof for murdering the, the people at the church in South Carolina and you take him to get some food on the way to jail, but you shoot another person, a black person, for running away from the scene um, in the back, or you, um, or, I mean, and, and, it's, and it's amazing that, that in the media, um, I see things all the time as well. I will tell you that my daughter, when we lived in New York, my daughter uh, was doing commercials in New York and um, the talent agency, Terrific Talent, um, she was with that agency. She, we would get calls. I mean, she went to auditions, so many different auditions. They all loved her. But then I would get a call from her agent telling me that they absolutely loved her, but they said that they can't have a black child to um, to be on this commercial. Now, she would get voiceovers where they didn't see her, but they could hear her voice. But she would not get the commercial because she was black and they already had um, other little black children, I guess I would say um, um, tokens uh, that they were already using. So they didn't need another one. And so she would be turned down. And now I look on TV and, and after um, the George Floyd murder, now all you see on TV uh, on these commercials are either uh, interracial couples or, um, you know, black people on these commercials. And I just think about how it should not take a crisis such as the the deaths of Breonna Taylor, um, um, Ahmaud Aubrey. And the one that, that hurts me the most was um, the young man, um, his last name is, is McLean. I don't know why his first name always escapes me. But it's, it, it just egregious acts against black people. And it, just, and it took all of this for people to start saying, oh, we're going to have a statement against racism. Um, you know, what, what is happening with our um, Asian Americans right now and, and Asians in, in, this, in this country. And, and it's taking, you know, things like this to make them start really, really doing something beyond the statements that they are making, you know, that that these organizations, these companies, corporations are making um, against racism and oppression. So, I mean, I'll take whatever I'm given. I'll take whatever platform for me to um, 
be able to advocate for it, but it, it, it's just, you know, it's mind-blowing, uh, you know, how, how it's happening. You know, and to just kind of build off of what you just said, I've talked to some other friends and, you know, they've said that what they're afraid of is that their momentum is going to die down and people are going to fall back into the status quo. But it seems like we have moved into a new stage of awareness and understanding. And unfortunately, because of these tragedies, I don't know why... You know, we're so stubborn about waking up and expanding our perspectives and listening to what people have been trying to say for decades. Right. Um, But, uh, you know, and I feel like that's part of my mission is to make sure the conversation continues and that we don't just get comfortable again and, and, and forget to make sure the changes that need to happen do happen. If, if I may, I'd like to pick up something you said earlier, too. You were talking about the co-worker who was identifying that black people are good athletes and, um, and that people are nothing without education. Uh, these are, there's kind of two tracks going through my mind in that regard. And that's one of the implicit biases that we need to stretch ourselves out of, uh, not putting people in these stereotypical images um, and that's what the media has portrayed to. There's all this attention to the athleticism or criminal activity of black people, right? And not enough yeah. attention to all the countless and monumental accomplishments despite all the hardship and resistance that was walked through to accomplish these things. And there's lists and lists and lists and lists of these types of accomplishments that must be more broadly discussed and brought to the surface. I, I totally agree. Um, I, my, my dean, um, Dr. Nina Beeman, uses this um, video that was done by Procter & Gamble called The Look. I don't know if you have seen that before. I have not. Okay, well, I encourage you to um, definitely look at that video. Uh, What it is, and I don't want to say too much about it because hopefully the audience will listen, um, uh, will will go and, and search for that video. It's called The Look. And uh, again, it is about a um, a black man who people just kind of looked at him and disregarded him and looked at him, and it's it's that it's that image of you walking down the street and you're about to pass a black man on the street and you clutch your purse closer to your body as though the black man is going to grab your purse, but the black man that you're passing is a black scientist, a black pharmacist, a black physician, a black a black male nurse, uh, you know, who has a great job and maybe even doing better than the person who's clutching the purse close to them. Amen. It, it, it will make you think of, um, it kind of, kind of, um, shows you, demonstrates how people see a black man. So I, I, I encourage, I encourage anyone, everyone to, to look at that video. Again, it's by Procter and Gamble and it's called The Look. Thank you for directing us to that. Uh, it sounds like that will be very helpful and, and help build uh, awareness. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to speak on, it, and then we can look toward wrapping up because we have been talking about an hour and we want to keep our listeners. Um, but when you when you talk about the judgment that comes on people who have various levels of education. Um, I know as a mental health provider, I have the utmost respect for the opinions 
and perceptions and uh, experiences of everybody, no matter what your level of education is or your race or your age, even. I know, you know, we can minimize the perceptions of children and teenagers because they're children and teenagers. Or, you know, I hear people that have various disabilities say that they feel like that they're seen as less intelligent because they have a disability. Um, so there's so many ways that we uh, discriminate against people. But uh, the bottom line is uh, valuing a human being, their perception, their experience, the information that's being laid out and, and building from that information and, and not uh, dismissing it because it's not coming from a person with an PhD or an MD or that sort of thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think back again to um, the people that have been in my life that have, have taught me and many of them do not have uh, an education. I mean, I've learned things from people who have not gone past the, the ninth grade. Uh, it, it doesn't require you to have a um, doctorate degree to be able to to understand and, and to articulate what's happening in our society today. So, um, yeah, I agree with you on that, um, you know, and, and there are many organizations that have things, um, that have like toolkits and different things, um, according to the, for them, for, for everyone. So, um, I, I wish that I could share some of the resources um, and I wish that I had brought my list of resources, which I should have done. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Well, and this is what we want. We want everybody to use their voice. Uh, we want to kind of bust through this perception that you have to be able to say things perfectly or eloquently or in a particular language. And you and I were talking about that earlier, you know, because we do have academic world influence. Um, it puts a lot of pressure on you to speak in a certain way, but we've got to, yeah. we, we really need to change that pressure because it's causing a lot of people. Well, not that in and of itself, but it, it contributes to, keeping a lot of people silent and yeah we we need people to share their truth their experience their perception their opinion so that we because we all do need to uh, work together it, it's not one voice that's going to change things it's many voices that will change things oh absolutely and um i I encourage all people to just um, be able to have the discussion um, and not and not to be bitter about it. You know, just have the discussion, and uh, and people should be made to feel free to say whatever they want to say. You know. Have something like a fireside chat where you can just sit down and you just say whatever you feel and and talk about it without people getting angry. You know, you shouldn't have to have a mediator. You should be able to do, you should be able to have this conversation. Um, and I think that if, as we uh, start having a, um, a forum, you know, for people to be able to do that, that you may see some changes in how um, it, this is approached. Thank you so much. Um, 
Vivian, are there any final words that you would want to say for this particular conversation? And I, I certainly hope that you plan to come back and have more conversations on Operation Flow. Oh, I would love to. It would be my pleasure. Um, I just feel that, uh, I just want to say that um, if you practice cultural humility and responsibility, then it will really take you very far. And what I mean by that is humble yourself and allow yourself to um, be able to approach people and talk to people, treat them as a human being. I don't. I no longer say, uh, I want you to treat me as you would yourself because I don't know how you would treat yourself. So... <laughs> Um, just so treat true. me as <laughs> just treat me as an, as a human being and don't s- tell me that you don't see me I need you to see me I need you to accept that I may be different from you and my points of views may be different from yours but that again we all are are um you know, well, I, it's it's my desire and my hope that we all are striving for the same thing, and that is totally dismantling racism and and not being afraid to have a conversation about it. Amen. Well, Vivian, thank you so much, Doctor McDaniel for uh, all the work that you're doing across our state and the influence that you have. And uh, we look forward to having you back on Operation Flow. Oh, thank you for having me.